Hello, fellow CRNAs, and welcome to Rapid Sequence Discussion, a 10 to 15 minute podcast version of Grand Rounds. This is Kia Gilbert, Katie Pisciatello, and Linda Callery. Each month, we will present a topic relevant to rural CRNAs. This week, we will be discussing some hurdles in L&D specific to critical access hospitals. Usually, we think of bread and butter perturians delivering at critical access hospitals, but we know with them, Tala, that that is not always the case. In this episode, we will discuss common outliers we see at these facilities. On the agenda are two types of OB patients. First, we'll present a case study regarding a patient with severe ankylosing spondylitis and history of bilateral hip replacements. Second, we will discuss morbidly obese parturients with a BMI of 50 or greater. Kia, take it away. A 34-year-old G1P0 at 38 weeks gestation arrives at the birthing center of a critical access hospital in active labor. This patient had been assessed two months prior due to her history of ankylosing spondylitis. The assessment revealed the following. The physical exam showed a very limited neck range of motion while with the patient rocking her body back when asked to extend her neck, a Malambuddy 3 classification, and a mouth opening less than two finger breaths. Also, she was not able to curve her lumbar spine when assessing for ability to place a labor epidural. Her past medical history is significant for AS with imaging showing right shoulder, lumbar, thoracic, and cervical spine involvement to varying degrees. Her past surgical history included bilateral total hip replacement seven years prior due to severe hip contractures. The rheumatologist notes revealed that her AS has caused sacroiliac joint fusion. However, they speculated that the patient retained enough range of motion for a normal spontaneous vaginal delivery. Based on these cumulative findings, the anesthesia department of this critical access hospital recommended at the time of the assessment that the patient would be better served at the nearest tertiary care center with access to more resources. However, the patient went into labor the day before her planned induction, which is how she arrived back at her local hospital, now in active labor. After one hour from her arrival, she is completely dilated and begins to push. Two hours later, there is no progress of labor due to cephalopelvic disproportion. The obstetrician on call decides to proceed with an urgent cesarean section. After evaluation and discussion with the obstetrician, the CRNA on call consents the patient for general anesthesia. Fortunately, immediately prior to the C-section, the relieving CRNA arrives, allowing for two anesthesia providers to be available. After the patient is positioned, prepped, and draped, an RSI with cricoid pressure is performed and the patient is successfully intubated with a glidescope. The baby is delivered successfully a few minutes later. Bilateral tap blocks are performed at the end of the case and the patient is extubated in the OR without incident. Here is a refresher on ankylosing spondylitis. AS is a chronic inflammatory joint disease that can range in severity and prognosis. AS affects the spine and adjacent soft tissues, usually involving the sacroiliac joints. The spine becomes increasingly immobile due to the ossification of the intraspinous ligaments, resulting in fusion and rigidity, leading to severely restricted mobility. The most recent estimate of the prevalence of AS in the United States is about 0.2 to 0.5%, with women twice as likely to have AS and symptoms peaking around the mid-20s to mid-30s. Along with the spine and pelvis, AS may involve peripheral joints such as hips and shoulders. For patients with juvenile onset AS, the occurrence of total hip replacement due to advanced disease is as high as 20%. It can also have effects on cardiovascular and pulmonary systems. Aortic regurgitation occurs in 40% of patients, and arthritis of the thoracic spine can lead to decreased chest wall compliance and vital capacity. 
The pregnant patient with ankylosing spondylitis presents several points of concern for the anesthesia provider. The sacroiliac joints that are most commonly affected are also key components of the birth canal affecting progress of labor. Upon literature review, articles reporting the anesthetic management of pregnancy complicated by AS are rare. AS is not an absolute contraindication to epidural anesthesia, and neuraxial technique may be beneficial in pregnant patients. However, epidurals can be difficult to place due to calcification of interspinous ligaments, formation of bony bridges between the vertebrae, or ankylosis of the vertebral column with restriction in lumbar flexion. In this patient, epidural placement was not attempted due to the severe restricted mobility of her lumbar spine. Additionally, the placement of an epidural is associated with an increased risk of epidural hematoma due to multiple attempts and difficult or traumatic insertion. When regional anesthesia fails or if an emergency C-section is required, the preferred method of anesthesia is a general anesthetic. The C-section rates for this population are the same as the national U.S. section rate, around 32%. This patient had ankylosis of the cervical spine, but did not report involvement of the TMJ. And although in this case, the decision was made to place the patient under general anesthesia and then perform an RSI with a videoscope, if difficult tracheal intubation is anticipated, a wake fiber optic or supraglottic airway device insertion should be considered. Although complications in pregnancy due to ankylosing spondylitis are rare, the parturient with AS requires the anesthesia provider to be vigilant and thoroughly prepared in order to avoid catastrophic outcomes. Manifestations of AS should be assessed with special attention paid to airway, cardiac, and spinal involvement, as these may interfere with labor, delivery, and the administration of anesthesia. Ideally, these patients will be referred early on in their pregnancy course to the anesthesia provider to establish a plan for management with interdisciplinary collaboration. In the second part of this episode, we will discuss another anesthetically challenging patient, super morbidly obese parturients. This is defined as a BMI of 50 or greater. We will review the complications associated with super morbid obesity and anesthetic management of these patients. Most critical access hospitals are less than ideal locations for labor and delivery of high-risk parturients. Due to lack of resources, many critical access hospitals have set limits to what BMI is appropriate to deliver at their facility. We have heard of limits ranging from 40 and greater. A review of the literature confirms that complications in this population can be severe and put mom and baby at risk for life-threatening events. The risks for this population are not just doubled, but in some cases, risk increases up to ninefold. So let's look further at this. Maternal complications for the super morbidly obese parturients include not only increased risk for failed regional anesthesia and difficulty intubating, but also increased blood loss, significantly increased cesarean deliveries, increased incidence of wound infection after cesarean deliveries, ninefold increase in odds of thrombotic event, fourfold increase for preeclampsia and eclampsia, and gestational hypertension. Beyond risks to mom, the fetus is also at increased risk for complications, such as increased perinatal death and stillbirth, as well as eight times as likely to have macrosomia, low APGAR scores at five minutes, respiratory problems or respiratory distress syndrome, neonatal hypoglycemia, five-fold increased incidence of shoulder dystocia, and double the risk of NICU admission. These complications were confirmed in multiple studies. The references will be posted on our blog link in the episode notes. As discussed earlier, despite attempts to transfer these patients, due to EMTALA, sometimes critical access hospitals are still involved in labor and delivery of parturients with morbid or super morbid obesity. 
In terms of anesthetic management, neuroaxial anesthesia is the best option for pain relief in obese patients. Given the increased risk for shoulder dystocia, fetal macrosomia, and unplanned C-section, a labor epidural helps facilitate an atraumatic delivery. Epidural placement can be challenging, but here are a few tips from the Chestnut textbook. 1. Sitting position is ideal as it helps identify midline and the distance from the skin to the epidural space is minimized. 2. In one study, 77% of morbidly obese parturients provided useful feedback to the anesthesia providers, so ask the parturient if they feel like you're a midline. 3. If possible, use ultrasound to identify the distance between the skin to the epidural space. There is a great video resource posted on our blog on how to use ultrasound to perform this measurement. On a positive note, the only thing low risk in these patients is if you do get a dural tap, the patient might be at lower risk for a postdural puncture headache related to higher intradominal pressures resulting in reduced CSF leak. Careful evaluation and early replacement of a malpositioned catheter is recommended due to increased risk of C-section. Neuraxial technique is preferred for C-sections, but if you must do a general anesthetic, literature supports that eight deep breaths are as effective as three minutes of pre-oxygenation in this patient population. Due to potential failed tracheal intubation and difficult bag mass ventilation, video laryngoscopy and emergency airway equipment should be readily available. As a reminder, propofol should be dosed according to lean body weight and sex dose to total body weight at one mg per kg. Studies show that this dose provides superior intubating conditions. If rock is used, dose according to ideal body weight. Sugaminex has been used successfully with no major adverse maternal or neonatal effects. Extubate in a semi-upright position and ensure complete reversal. Postoperatively, these patients are high risk for hypoventilation and area obstruction, so patients should be placed on continuous pulse oximetry and capnography. This is our last episode for our capstone project. So this is the last time I'm down on my knees. We're begging you please complete the pre and post survey. In the future, we may record episodes at our leisure, but we won't be committing to monthly releases. That concludes our sixth episode of Rapid Sequence Discussion. Thanks to those of you who listened and are supporting our podcast. We are three full-time CRNAs doing all of our own recording and editing, and this podcast is for our capstone project. Follow us on Instagram at Rapid Sequence Discussion, click episode notes to find the link to our blog, and stay tuned for future episodes. Until next time.